Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 11 this morning as we consider God's Word for us as a church this morning. I think we will uh, hear some big truths this morning, but also uh, see some practical application of those truths come out in this text this morning. Romans chapter 11, I'm going to read beginning in verse 11 through verse 24, and we'll ask for the Lord's help once more, and we'll consider these things together. Romans 11, verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you... Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Would you pray once more with me? God, I simply want to acknowledge You as the Lord of all salvation. You had this plan in mind before the foundation of the world and began enacting it even when you said, let there be light. 
even when you made man and woman in your image and breathed life into us, even when you promised salvation when man and woman turned against you, even as you've promised and fulfilled your promises for hundreds and thousands of years, especially when you sent Jesus. Jesus, when you came, you uh, lived the life that we could not live, and you died the death that we deserve, but you rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And so all who come to you will find that you are kind, will find that you are gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But those who don't will find, God, that you are severe, a judge rightly punishing sin. And God, I pray uh, that anyone who knows not the kindness of the Lord this morning would know it full well before they leave. As you open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear these things uh, this morning. So, God help. Only you can save. And so, we ask that you would save in accordance with your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, kids, have you ever been in your house uh, and one of your siblings ran in? eating a cookie or a sucker or a piece of candy or something like that. And, well, now I'm looking at one who doesn't have a sibling. Okay. So maybe you've been at school. And kiddo, your, your friends, they come in with a piece of candy or a sucker or a cookie or something like that. And you say, I want one. Where did you get that? And they say, from mom and dad or from the teacher. And you say, okay, well, and then you run and get that, right? You saw this thing that you wanted. It made you somewhat jealous, and you thought, oh, I want to go and get that. And adults, don't think that you're unlike this. You, too, have seen other adults, your spouse, maybe, uh, your, your coworkers, your neighbors. They have had certain things, and you've seen that and be like, hey, and maybe in a more, like, adult form, rather than, where'd you get that? You know, you'd be like, hey, well, this, I saw you, yeah, you had this, that looks, where'd, where'd you get that? I mean, and then slowly but surely they unveil, and if that thing happens to be some free gift that's available to all people, you kind of think, oh, I want to go and get, get some of that. I want to get in on that. How, how, do I, how do I do that? Well, this is the kind of attitude and mind behind Paul and, and his ministry. I don't know if you heard it or not, uh, but Paul says that his aim in ministry is to see as many Gentiles come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior so that more and more Jews would become jealous. Jealous of salvation, jealous of grace, jealous of what the church is experiencing, and that they too would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. It's an interesting ministry model, right? I'm aimed to make people jealous, and yet that's exactly what Paul is, is aiming to do, and he, he really gets it that this is the, the plan of God for all. Uh, all of history. This is 
salvation history really being told out to us, overviewed for us, even explained for us, and illustrated for us in these passages. In fact, if you were paying close attention, I just gave you my outline. History of salvation. Paul, he begins to overview it. And, and it's this jealousy, in fact, that God first wanted the Gentiles to see God's grace and His love uh, his steadfastness, his kindness, his nearness to the Jews, so that the Gentiles would turn from their false gods and run to Yahweh and run to Israel's God and, and to become one with them. But there came a point in history when things changed, when Israel no longer followed Yahweh's Messiah, Jesus. And so things sort of shifted where uh, the Gentiles were the ones who were experiencing God's grace and salvation in hopes that the Jews would turn be in their jealousy towards Christ and, and be saved themselves. Paul made it abundantly clear in Romans 10 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, what? Saved. Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How good of news that is. And he goes on to say, though, that not everyone will call because they've not believed. And not everyone will believe because they haven't heard. And not everyone will hear because people aren't preaching or proclaiming. And not everyone will preach and proclaim because they haven't been sent, and yet how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And so the question was, if everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, when, you, when, when Paul looked out, when the people of his day and age looked out and they saw all, not all, most of Israel rejecting uh, Jesus, as their Messiah, they wondered, has God rejected them? To Paul, Paul answered that question, by no means. And they said, well, maybe they haven't heard of, the, of Jesus being the Messiah. And he assured them, no, they've heard. But then they questioned, well, maybe they haven't understood fully. And Paul said, no, they've, they've understood. Well, has God rejected them? No. God has not rejected them. They have rejected Him. And Paul is continuing to answer these questions. In fact, he's bringing up the questions that he knows his readers might have. He's bringing up questions that Paul has heard before when he um, would regularly make the pattern on his missionary journeys of going to the synagogue first, preaching Jesus as the Christ until, for the most part, the Jews rejected him and he left the synagogue and he went to the public square. This was Paul's regular pattern. And so Paul brings up another question that he likely heard in those situations, a question that the Roman readers would have asked in their minds, and so he brings it up lest uh, their questions not be answered. And so in verse 11, he asks, So I ask, did they, that is the Jews, did they stumble in order 
that they might fall. And I would say fall without being able to get back up. Uh, Before your iPhone or your Apple Watch could detect you falling in such a way that it would call your emergency contact, you know it can do that nowadays? There, There used to be this commercial and this necklace that you could wear around your neck and you would push if you had fallen and you couldn't get back up a bunch of years. You could push this red button and it would contact the emergency authorities and you would be able to say, I've fallen and I can't get back up. This is the kind of idea that they're asking. Did they stumble in order that they might fall and not be able to get back up again? And Paul says, no. They can get back up again. But the way that you get back up, he's going to go on to say, is by faith. Not works, not resting for a little bit, you know, stretching out, you know, those bones and bruises that you got when you fell down, strengthening yourself to stand back up on your own two feet. No, faith in a God who will pick you back up again. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? And and this idea of stumbling comes from earlier in Romans chapter 9, where God had said, even in Isaiah, that He would lay a stone in Zion that would become a stumbling stone for those who rejected Him. Jesus, the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. And there were some who looked at Jesus as the Messiah and rejected Him and they stumbled over Him. And so the question, did they stumble over Jesus in order that they would fall and not be able to get back up again? Paul says, by no means. And here, Paul begins to overview, a, give us an overview of the history of salvation, uh, really, uh, in Christ, or since Christ. And we see this in verse 11 and 12. Rather, through their trespass, that is the Jews' trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? There's several kind of steps that are, are really happening all at one time um, in, this, in these few verses, in this short, really, overview of, of God's history of salvation in Christ. And the first is this trespass of the Jews. Rather, through their trespass, uh, this stumbling over Jesus, now, now Paul is calling a trespass, their sin, their rejection of Jesus. Uh, the first really step in this, that's the, again, they're all happening kind of at the same time. Uh, the first step really, though, is this trespass of the Jews, rejecting Jesus. And because of their trespass, Paul says, secondly, then, salvation has come to the Gentiles. In this history of salvation, the Jews' rejection of Jesus 
brought about this salvation for the Gentiles in such a way that Jesus was kind of the dividing line, wasn't he? Uh, Of those who would follow God. Would you follow Jesus? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is He your Savior? Is He your Lord? And when the Jews rejected Him, the Gospel then, as, as, as we know, those of us who've uh, sat through the, the preaching and study of the book of Acts, it went from Jerusalem and, and then began to spread out as the Jews rejected it in Jerusalem and persecute, they began to persecute those who followed Jesus. It spread then to Judea and Samaria. And as followers of Jesus Christ in Judea and Samaria were persecuted, it began to spread there to the ends of the earth. And so the Jews' rejection, their trespass uh, uh, against Jesus and rejecting Jesus brought about salvation for the ends of the earth, the Gentiles. And, and then Paul goes on next to, to show that the next step of this is to make Israel jealous at the end of verse 11. To make Israel jealous. Uh, that, that they would look at what the Gentiles were experiencing that's cataloged in the book of Acts. That they're experiencing forgive, repentance and faith. They're experiencing forgiveness of sins. They're experiencing um, this gift of the Holy Spirit that is enabling them to live radically different lives. That this um, new life in Jesus Christ is causing them to live so radically different that they're selling homes, giving of their property, giving away of their money, welcoming people in with hospitality, um, inviting others to... Um, to be welcomed into this family of God. There, are, there is a diverse uh, yet unified body of Christ and they're experiencing the love of God, the peace of God, the, the shalom that we sung about that the Jews were longing for, the Gentiles were experiencing. And, and Paul is saying that this is happening as a part of God's plan of salvation in hope of some of these Jews being jealous and saying, where did you get that? Where, where did you get this peace? Where did you get this shalom? Where did you get this unity? Where did you get this? Why is your life different than it was before? Why are you worshiping Jesus who's claiming to be the Messiah whom we've rejected? What, what's happening here? And in that moment, they might hear Right? Because the Gentiles are sent. And they'll hopefully preach this good news. Making disciples of all nations. And in doing so, they, these Jews would hear and hopefully believe and hopefully call so, because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So first, trespasses of the Jews. Salvation of the Gentiles. Then the jealousy of the Jews, but then it goes even beyond that to this riches of the Gentiles in verse 12. Now we see this if-then kind of argument happening. Two ifs and one then. Now if their trespasses, whose trespasses? The Jews. If their trespasses means riches for the world... Or, same thing, if their failure 
means riches for the Gentiles. We just described all of that. Paul goes on to say there's, there's something, something else out there that's coming. How much more will their full inclusion mean? If Israel's rejection brought about a Gentile salvation that would hopefully bring about a Jewish jealousy, how much more would a Jewish exception of Jesus mean in the future? If their rejection brought about the salvation of all the Gentiles who would repent and believe, what would their exception of Jesus? We live in a a period of history that is marked predominantly by a Jewish rejection of Jesus. There are, there is a remnant of Jews who have turned to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Some might call them Messianic Jews, Jews who uh, have believed that Isaiah 53 is actually talking about Jesus. Uh, They've put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, unlike many of their uh, fellow uh, country or, or fellow Jews. But predominantly, most Jews have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and they're still waiting. They're still waiting for God to send His Messiah, who won't be crucified, won't be rejected, will be king. Um, this is the time in history in which we live, but it seems as if Paul is saying that period of history brought about the salvation of all of those around the world who would repent and believe. What would it look like if the, the Jews were not predominantly categorized by rejection, but were predominantly categorized by exception? If, if the Gentiles have been blessed by their rejection, how much more blessing will there be in that moment for the Gentiles in the world by their exception? And it seems as if Paul is hinting at there's a coming day at when the Jews will no longer be predominantly categorized by rejecting Jesus, but because of Gentile salvation, because of increased jealousy, because of Jesus making Himself known in an even more full way, to the Jews that predominantly they'd be categorized by accepting Jesus as Messiah. Oh, wouldn't we love for that to happen? Wouldn't we long for those who are seemingly closer than anyone in the world? When we think about the prayer for the nation, we think of all of these other religions. How much closer are the Jews than uh, those in Japan? How much closer are the Jews than those in India whom some of our friends are traveling to right now? How much closer are those uh, Jews than those in the Middle East that some of our other friends are hoping to travel to later uh, this year? Like Paul, so close and yet so far, but in an instant when he saw Jesus as God and Savior All of that closeness became real in that moment. All of those promises in his head became real in that moment. And so an even greater, how much more will their full inclusion 
mean? Well, this is Paul overviewing this history of salvation, but he goes another step and he begins to explain it. It almost seems like he's saying the same thing three different times in each of these paragraphs in this passage of Scripture, each time giving us a little bit more in a new way. Note then the history of salvation explained in verses 13 through 16. Paul says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Again, writing to the church in Rome before he had ever been there, um, highlighting the fact that there's probably Jews and Gentiles in the church, but it's predominantly made up of Gentiles. And so he pauses for a moment and says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles in this moment. Uh, and then he says, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Of course, Paul himself was a Jew, uh, a, a great Jew, as he has said in other places. Uh, and yet he was a, an apostle. Apostle means a sent one. Again, sent to preach so that others would hear and others would believe and others would call. And specifically sent to the Gentiles, um, which would have been different from maybe the Apostle Peter who was sent specifically to the Jews or others who remained in and around Jerusalem proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the Jews. Uh, Paul was specifically an apostle to the Gentiles even though... Again, he made it his pattern, as we see in the book of Acts, to go to the synagogue first and then to the public square, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, which is why he opens up the book of Romans saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. He he was faithful to go to the Jews, but when the Jews rejected him, he made it a point to go to the Gentiles. Why? He tells us. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, he says, I magnify my ministry. I, in other words, glorify my ministry. Now, this is not Paul saying, I'm the man. I am the apostle of all apostles, you know, strutting around, trying to say, I'm better than all the others. I'm magnifying. I want, I want to be known. I want my name. I want the most followers. I, I want the most views. I want this, that, or the other. I want people to know me. He's not, not saying that. He's magnifying his uh, intentionality in ministry. He's saying, I, I'm giving everything to this ministry. I am, I'm going to lay down everything that I have for this ministry. I magnify my ministry. Why? In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some. Paul says, I'm going to take the gospel. I'm going to be sent by my church in Antioch and I'm going to go. I'm going to go three times. And then I'm going to go to prison and that's going to be a missionary journey as well. And I'm going to go and I'm going to proclaim the gospel to the Jews first. And there are going to be some who accept this message. But he knew that the majority would reject him. And when they reject him, he would go to the public square. 
and he would proclaim Christ. And many of those Gentiles would come to faith in Jesus and he would do it and he would do it and he would do it over and over and over to the point of going to prison, to the point of being stoned, to the point of being almost killed, to the point of being shipwrecked. To the... He would suffer all of those things that he mentions in the, in the book of Corinthians so that not only would the Gentiles be saved, but the Jews would be jealous of what the Gentiles were experiencing. Paul says, I want to magnify this ministry. I'm going to give everything to it. I'll give my life to this in hopes that I would make some of the Jews jealous and by doing so, some of them might be saved. Paul says it's worth it. It was 100% worth it to give his life to make this gospel known in hopes of saving some of them in hopes of saving some of these Jews. I mean, this is the, the point at which we need to, to say, if we as a, a church, if we as a, a people of God, if we as individual Christians want to see not only more Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, but more Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ, We've got to lay down our lives for the sake of Jesus. We've got to lay down our pocketbooks for the sake of Jesus. We've got to lay out our homes for the sake of Jesus. We've got to lay aside our jobs for the sake of Jesus and go. To take the gospel, like Paul did, to the ends of the earth. And so, yes, consider giving up some of your vacation to go on a mission trip with us to Latvia to make the gospel known to the ends of the earth. Because in doing so, the church will be built there as it is being built here. And as more Jews come to see this church experiencing God's grace and salvation and, and unity and peace and transformation, they too would be jealous of that and want that. Be confirmed in your calling to go as a missionary today. Because in doing so, you are aiming to not only see the Gentiles saved, but in doing, seeing more Gentiles saved, you are, as Paul says, somehow will make his fellow Jews jealous and thus might save some. One of the keys in this period of history to seeing more Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ is the church being the church and the gospel being proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And, and somehow, in God's plan of salvation, when the Jews see the gospel of Jesus Christ going to a people they had never heard of or never expected it to go to, they'd be jealous of that and say, where'd you get that? Why them and not us? And they would see because we've rejected Jesus, because we've turned, because we've stumbled. But Paul goes on and, and says, not only, uh, not only this, has this trespass led to salvation for the Gentiles, and not only has the salvation for the Gentiles uh, is aiming to make some of the Jews jealous in order to save some of them, he, he goes on in verse 15, as he did earlier, 
in the, in the first paragraph to say that there's riches for the Gentiles as well. For if their rejection, again, the Jews' rejection of Jesus, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If their rejection meant that the gospel then went to the Gentiles and and the Gentiles got to experience the riches of God's grace in salvation, how much more would uh, their exception of Jesus in a larger way mean for the world? How much more? And Paul describes it and says and defines it as but life from the dead. And after plenty of reading this week on this topic, Paul at least means something as radical as life from the dead, something as radical as a real-life resurrection, someone dead who has come back to life like Jesus, or the actual resurrection that we're all waiting for. If the Jews' rejection of Jesus in the past and predominantly right now has meant that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles and many of the Gentiles are being saved, how, what would it mean then if the Jews accepted Jesus and some would say here, but the end of the world, life from the dead, that Right now, in this period of history, when the Jews are predominantly rejecting Jesus, if and when that changes to them predominantly accepting Jesus, you better be ready. Because that may be the end of the world when Christ returns. How much more than life from the dead? Paul then helps us. He he gives us a couple short little illustrations that he's going to tease out in verse 17. He says if the, in verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And when you see an illustration like this in the Bible, you have to first consider where does this illustration come from? And, and what then is that illustration pointing to? And the first of these illustrations, I mean, it may make somewhat sense, um, but for those of us who didn't grow up as Jews, it doesn't make as much sense. Um, this is, uh, where did this illustration come from? Well, it came from Jewish life. Uh, it came from a Jewish ceremony of offering the first fruits of the harvest. We, we've seen this in Numbers and in several other places in the Old Testament. And as the Jews would take the first fruits from their harvest and um, would take that grain and would make bread, they would offer uh, part of that, that first loaf of bread to the Lord. But, but Paul is saying, just think about it. If they took all of this grain and made this dough and they took a part of that dough and made a loaf of be- bread and baked the bread and then gave that loaf of bread to the Lord and set it apart, and it was holy to the Lord, isn't the whole lump from which they took a chunk of it from holy as well? 
Uh, to which Paul infers, yes, it is. Uh, this, this part, if this part is holy, so is the whole lump. And, and Paul similarly says, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Just think about it. If a tree has a root that is healthy and vigorous, uh, then so will be its, its branches. But if a tree has unhealthy root system and, and, and they're dying underneath, then so will be its branches. And what Paul is saying here is, is that this, uh, these first fruits or this, this root um, in these illustrations are, are speaking of those Israelites. And I'll just go back all the way to Abraham who have been characterized by faith. Uh, the book of Hebrews describes this well, that it, Abraham was saved by faith. And these first Jews were always saved by faith, not by works, not by ceremony, not by ethnicity, not by family heritage, not by any of that. They were saved by faith. And if Abraham was set apart, made holy because of his faith, then so is the whole lump from which the rest will come. And if the root of this family tree of faith um, was saved by faith, then so will be its branches. Paul knows that he probably lost his audience just like I think I lost you at that moment. And so he gives an illustration that I think will help us in this moment. He begins to flesh it out even more with some better language for us. So then look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. We've seen history of salvation overviewed, the history of salvation explained. Now I want you to see the history of salvation illustrated. In verse 17, he takes that last image which, uh, again, that first image of the dough and first fr fruits was ceremonial, was from Jewish life. Um, the second one was not. That was from agricultural life, something that Jews and Gentiles would have been uh, aware of. They would have understood. And yet the, the target of both of those illustrations was the same. Well, here he's going to flesh out that illustration that uh, that comes from agriculture. He says in verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, and again, if we're going to go back to that illustration that he gave us, if the root of that tree were those who first came by faith, let's say Abraham and those following him, then um, those branches that were a part of that tree would also have to come by faith, to be a part of this tree, to be a part of this, um, a part of God's family, if you will. But Paul contrasts that and says, if some of those branches were broken off, and he'll go on to say they're broken off because of a lack of faith, and you, now he's speaking to the Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others 
and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, Paul commands, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So again, we've got this imagery and then even more imagery um, on top of that. We've got this tree, this root of faith from the past growing up into branches of faith, but some of these branches are broken off, which Paul will say is they're, they're broken off because of unbelief. But he mentions now, but you, you Gentiles, you weren't even a part of this tree. You weren't even a sprout, a branch, a leaf. You weren't even a part of this. You were way over here as a wild olive shoot. Just a, a sprig from the ground or maybe a wild olive tree and a new sprout over there. And says that you were like that wild olive tree uh, sprout shoot and you were cut off from that and you were brought over to, God says, my tree and you were grafted in. And here's where, again, most of us, not being farmers, are probably like, okay, I kind of understand what that might mean, um, but let me just explain it for you. Um, and this was made a, a, a more of a reality for me many years ago when um, Joy's aunt actually told me about this tree she had at her house that was a citrus tree with five kinds of citrus fruit hanging from it. And you think like, well, how does that happen? Well, they took one tree, let's say an orange tree, and they went over here to a lemon tree and they cut off a healthy branch of the lemon tree and brought it over to the orange tree and put a, a notch in it and slid that lemon branch right inside and taped it all up and again nourished the root and watered and took care of it and eventually that that lemon branch grew into that orange tree and it began sucking up the nourishment into its branch. And they did it multiple times over on this citrus branch. You know, uh, in fact, I had won one of these for forever. Turns out they cost a lot of money. Uh, we, as a family, we even went this week to buy one of these kinds of trees. And I was like, I could buy five trees for like one of those trees, these fruit cocktail trees as they, they call them now. And so we bought five single trees instead of, or seven single trees instead of one cocktail tree. But we looked at them there and, and we showed them to the kids. You can see a healthy branch and root and then a different color uh, apple this time grafted into it growing off this way. And then another apple kind grafted off and growing out this way so on this tree that they had at the farm yesterday they had gala on this branch fuji on this branch red delicious on on this branch and paul's using that imagery that his people would have been aware of they would have understood but the funny thing is it actually goes contrary to to nature because he's saying you take this wild olive shoot and you bring it to the uh, cultivated olive tree. But in fact, what would have been practiced in his day and age is you would have taken the healthy cultivated branch and taken it to the unfruitful wild olive tree 
and grafted it onto theirs so that that would have been fruitful. But God says, no, I'll take what's unfruitful and I'm going to bring it into my tree and I'm going to graft it in. Paul tells us why God did this and, and warns us even. And when you're considering this aspect of salvation's history that's being illustrated here by this agricultural image of a tree and its root and its um, unfruitful branches being cut off, and yet a wild branch being grafted in, that is, uh, in God's family, Jews who have rejected Jesus by a lack of faith in Jesus being broken off, and Gentiles who have believed in Jesus have been made a part of His family by faith. So what, Paul says? Do not be arrogant towards the branches, he commands. And this is important, I'm assuming, for his audience that he's writing to. In a season of history in which it could be really easy in a church that had both predominantly Gentiles and fewer Jews, for the Gentiles to think, God saved us. We, didn't, we weren't even a part of your family and, and he's brought us in. And now look at all of the Jews who aren't a part of this family. It'd be very easy for the Gentiles in that place, but Paul is saying, don't you dare be arrogant. Salvation is by grace through faith. That none of us came to be a part of God's tree except by faith. And the Gentiles who seem to be coming into God's family and being grafted into God's tree more now, they came by faith. And though there are a few now of the Jews, if and when more come, they'll too be coming by faith. And so Paul warns. And it's a warning for us as Christians as well that when we consider our place in God's family, and we may not be tempted to look specifically at the Jews, but it's very easy to look at the world around us, to look at the people on the news, to look at some of our neighbors, to think about our boss or our coworkers who aren't Christians, and to immediately think ourselves better than they, than they are. To be a little bit arrogant with our faith, proud of, of who we are. But Paul says, do not become arrogant. He explains in verse 18, if you are, remember, remember, is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Isn't this something that we so often need to be remembered? It wasn't us who saved us. It was God. We're not saved just simply by being a branch. 
We're saved because we are a part of this root, a part of this tree, soaking up the nourishment by faith. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul says that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Listen, but you stand fast through faith. Paul's saying don't be arrogant. Be humble. And continue to stand fast by faith. Which he'll go on to say, lest you too be cut off. For if you start by faith, but don't continue in faith, you really had no faith to begin with. And so Paul warns here that realizing our place in God's history of salvation, it shouldn't cause us to boast or to be proud, but to uh, not be arrogant and to remain steadfast, immovable, continuing on in faith. He goes on at the end of verse 20, and he commands similarly, not only are we not to be arrogant, but to, be, but to stand fast, but he says, secondly, do not become proud, but fear. Do not become proud, but fear. Look at the end of verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches... Neither will he spare you. This salvation that comes by grace through faith is not something for us to be proud for. All of the details of salvation that Paul has been fleshing out in Romans chapter 9 through 11 for are not something to pat ourselves on the back, but they ought to cause us to drop to our knees and worship and praise Him. They ought to cause us to fear God. Not fear in, in a sense that we like, ah, from God, but a fear in a sense of, oh God. As we sung earlier, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's a, a response to the Lord Realizing how undeserving we really are. We ought not to be arrogant. We ought to continue. We ought not to be proud. We ought to fear and worship this Lord who has brought us from the outside and grafted us into His family. And then thirdly, Paul notes in verse 22, note, he commands, consider, consider then the kindness and severity of our God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Now, depending on who you talk to or depending on what church you grew up in, you may have uh, had parents, been in a church, or been around people who considered God strong and severe. And maybe you grew up hearing a, a sort of preaching that could be characterized as hell, fire, and brimstone. And, you know, talking about hell so vividly that it would scare anyone and your dog into 
heaven and to pray a prayer of repentance and to get in the waters of baptism and this, that, or the other. Or maybe you went to another church or grew up in a family or have been around people who just highlight, God's just so loving. Oh, He just loves you. He loves everyone. And everyone is going to experience God's love one day. And it's as if God is two totally different people. But when you read the Bible, you find out that both are true. And one side versus the other is not to be highlighted as, as they are both to be noted and considered, as Paul says here. Something that he had already said in Romans chapter 2, verse 4 through 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul is telling Christians and non-Christians to note both the, the uh, severity of God and the kindness of God. The kindness of God is meant to lead us towards repentance, and the severity of God is meant to be a warning that we would by faith trust in Jesus who absorbed God's wrath on the cross and took our punishment and stood in our place and died and yet rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. We're not to presume on God's kindness. Uh, thinking that we deserve it, to being arrogant or proud. Uh, we're to repent and to believe and to turn and to trust the Lord. And Paul is warning in these ways, do not be arrogant, do not be proud. Continue steadfastly, do not fear. Note these truths about God that are not one or the other, but both and he says, otherwise you too will be cut off. Not saying that if you come to Jesus by faith in Him and are saved that you can lose your salvation, but that those who are truly saved will continue. They'll prove that they have truly believed in Jesus Christ by continuing in that faith. But then he gives an encouragement in closing in this illustration regarding Israel in verse 23. He says, and even they, who's they? It's the Jews. It's Israel, unbelieving Israel, those branches that have been broken off and thrown to the side. If they do not continue in their, what's the word? Unbelief. Again, faith here is the key. This tree of faith. If they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. Why? Because they've done something in and of themselves or because they've chosen or because... No. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own tree? He takes that imagery and says, 
if I cut them off because they did not believe in Jesus as Messiah and I lay them aside, as I, as this gardener, beautifully take these wild shoots and I begin grafting them in. Wild olive tree here, lemon tree here, lime tree here, Fuji apple here, like all of these fruits. And these branches that have been cut off begin to look at that tree and see the diversity, see the fruitfulness, see the beauty of what God is making. They get jealous and they say, yes, okay, Jesus, you are the Messiah. I see it now. I see what you're doing. I repent. I believe. I trust you. The gardener reaches down and doesn't go to get any more wild ones, but grabs that branch that he had cut off previously and grafts it in. It's the same nature. How much easier, Paul says, can God do that than he do the other? And so there's an encouragement here for, for Israel as well. Church, we need to consider our own lives. Even if you're a guest just attending with us this morning, you too need to consider adult and children alike. You need to consider. Are you a part of God's tree? Are you one of God's branches? None of us deserve to be a part of His tree. None of us deserve to be a part of God's family. Paul and, and history, Israel's history is making it abundantly clear. It doesn't matter what family you're born into. It doesn't matter how many good works you do. It doesn't matter how good your attendance is or your giving record is. What matters is faith. What matters is, have you believed in Jesus? And if you have, you know there's no reason to be arrogant or proud. You know there's no reason to boast, but to be humble and to worship and to fear. And yet at the same time, this gives us even more reason, Christian, to make this good news known to the ends of the earth in hopes that more and more wild branches being grafted into God's tree of faith would cause the Jews to be jealous and turn themselves and be saved. Some deep truths here. Some, um, honestly, truths that we don't often consider but are important for us to consider. Not only to humble us, regarding our own salvation, but to spur us on to make this gospel known to the ends of the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, I confess that it is easy to become arrogant, to become proud, to boast in salvation as if I had something to do with it. But the, these images, these words are a helpful reminder. These commands are needed for us at different times to remember that it is you who save and not us. 
Uh, God, I pray that we as a church would be reminded of that. We would be humbled. We would um, consider and take note of both your kindness and severity. And then we would make that good news known to anyone and everyone whom we have the opportunity to share it with. And we would go to great lengths to, as Paul did in magnifying his ministry, lay down our lives to make this gospel known to anyone and everyone. God, I pray that as we as your church um, begin to resemble what it looks like to be the bride of Christ more and more, week in and week out, year in and year out, in some small way, God, we would make some Jews jealous that they too would come to faith in Jesus as we have professed faith in Jesus. God, I pray that you would continue the work of grafting trees, knowing that there are no true all, uh, branches in your tree, but all have come by faith from first to last. And so, God, may we as your church be built up to be a beautiful representation of uh, just a part of your tree of faith here at the fields. May we be a part of sending and proclaiming so that others might hear and believe and eventually call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And God, I pray that some this morning, having asked themselves, am I a branch on the tree of faith? Am I a branch in God's family? That they too would, even today, even now, consider the kindness of God and repent of their sins and call on the name of the Lord Jesus to save. We ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand and worship as we close our time together and respond to God's word.